Welcome to The Professor and the Hack. We're up to episode 98. Thanks for staying with us. If you have it, if you've just joined us, thanks for that as well. I am The Hack, Hugh Rimmington, and uh, The Prof, Peter Van Onselen. How are you, Pete? Good, Hugh. Lots kicking around at the moment. I mean, we've got one more week of Parliament to go before the midwinter recess, but uh, even before that final week, plenty happening. And in, in the absence of the Prime Minister, he's only just back and in isolation now for 14 days, uh, but it was a busy parliamentary week, and he was, of course, busy overseas too. Now, how did the Deputy Prime Minister perform, in your view, as he <laughs> stepped up to the big gig, Micmac? You know what? I thought that he performed exactly to expectations. Oh, it was that bad, was it? <laughs> but, I mean, I, I, I had a relatively low set of expectations for Michael McCormick's performance. He's actually a pretty good bloke away from... Uh, away from his poor parliamentary performances and his jumbling of words. And and he, I think one of his phrases that I enjoyed was referring to Australia as, um, you know, the best place that he'd like to visit anywhere in the nation. Uh, it was right up there with, was it Dan Quayle that said Australia is the, uh, the United States rather is the greatest planet on earth. Uh, anyway, it was, so it, was, yeah. it was, it was, it was a unique parliamentary performance, but not unique for Michael McCormick. Let's put it that way. You know, one thing about politicians that strikes me, knowing how much I garble and, and just muck up my words anyway, and I think most people do, is how rarely they talk complete and utter gibberish. They'll talk nonsense in the sense that they don't say anything and they'll use all kinds of horrible circumlocutions mm. to get avoid actually saying stuff. But um, given the amount of words collectively they speak, politicians, uh, you know, it, it, you pick out these ones where they just you know, really are talking nonsense. Uh, it, it's, it surprises me that they're not talking more garbage. It's funny. A backhanded because, compliment. Well, you see, I mean, Michael McCormick um, certainly jumbles his words. Barnaby Joyce has always been the same. Uh, I'm not picking on the National Party because someone like Keith Pitt, who I actually would often disagree with what he has to say, is actually very eloquent in how he says it. And I think someone like David Littleproud, the Deputy Nationals leader, he probably falls into that category that you mentioned where he's clear in his use of language. It's just that he's not actually saying anything a lot of the time. And then, you know, you could go through all the all manner of politicians in the major parties that also have these issues. But I guess the difference is we forget this. The National Party is a small party the junior coalition partner in the coalition government, but because of their importance to the coalition having the numbers to govern in its own right as a collective, they get the deputy prime ministership, which means you become the acting PM when the PM's abroad. They get a certain quota of cabinet positions, even though they are against quotas for gender, but we'll put that inconsistency to one side. So in other words, they get more prominence on the complex policy stage and the centre stage of the media than their parties probably worthy of having uh, in terms of its number of representatives and its percentage of the vote. And we were reminded, in fact, of their, the power of their influence just this week by the very same Keith Pitt, when uh, there was all the talk about whether the government would uh, go to a zero net emissions by 2050, uh, plainly a reluctance by Scott Morrison to do so. And then mm. uh, the clear gun to the head, figuratively speaking, from uh, Keith Pitt, this week saying, well, if he wants any kind of nonsense like that, he has to take it to us. And uh, he wouldn't support it. Yeah. 
I thought that I thought, I mean, I, 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 you know, that was the, 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 for me, the, the Thursday final day of the Sydney week story uh, for the five o'clock news. Uh, we led with, you know, the unemployment numbers, which no doubt we'll get to in a moment, but then the majority of the story was about that Keith Pitt announcement, which started on radio national where he was on with Frank Kelly. And I tell you what, I thought it was really significant. It didn't get as much coverage uh, on that day, that final sitting day of the week, because there was so much else out there, ongoing issues with AstraZeneca, all these other things. But I tell you what, he was blunt about it. He was asked, he, he tried to avoid answering the question a couple of times, but then Keith Pitt, for better or worse, does ultimately tell you what he thinks. And eventually he just gave a direct answer that he does not think the National Party will support a shift to a zero a net zero emissions 2050 target. And he made it clear too. And he said, I want to make this clear, Fran. You know, he gave it to us straight that that is not the current policy of the government because the government policy is determined in unison with the nationals and the nationals have not been asked nor have agreed to a shift to a net zero emissions by 2050. Then that was when Fran said, well, would you, do you think they're likely to support? He said, no, I don't, essentially. Now, that was very different to everything we've been hearing now for weeks, even months, of where Scott Morrison was trying to arguably crab walk his government towards ahead of going to Glasgow in November later this year. And Boris Johnson, no less, when he stood up at the end of his private meeting with Scott Morrison, whether he got the wrong end of the stick or whether he said something that he wasn't supposed to from their private chat, he basically announced on Australia's behalf that Australia's agreed to go to net zero emissions by 2050. Now, maybe Bojo was just an idiot and got it wrong, or maybe he let the cat out of the bag with where Morrison wants to go. But I tell you what, Hugh, if he can't get the nationals over the line, he can't get the government to that position, and then he turns up to Glasgow with no such target. Well, he turns up to Glasgow with no such target. He turns up to the next election with no such target. And plainly, that works for the National Party, which is increasingly the party of the miners uh, rather than the traditional position as party of uh, the farmers. But then you have a coalition not interested or seeming to be dragging the chain again on these issues. Is it likely to cost them at the next election in terms of seats closer to the metropolitan centres? Well, look, potentially, but I don't think so. I think when you go seat by seat, that this is actually not the issue for the coalition or indeed inner city liberal seats, that it perhaps feels like it should or could be when you look at the full national stage with it looking like they're a bunch of dinosaurs. And when you look at the full international stage there, where they again look like a bunch of dinosaurs, not supporting a net zero emissions target by 2050. The reason I say that is because I think that, you know, your Dave Sharma's in a seat like Wentworth, for example, uh, or Katie Allen in a seat like Higgins uh, or Trent Zimmerman in a seat like North Sydney. I think they hang on despite most of their constituents probably thinking that there should be this zero target. It probably prevents them picking up a seat like Warringah, but they were probably never going to get that anyway off Zali Stegall. Um, but it really shores them up in those Queensland seats that they need to hold, as you mentioned, particularly the ones that lean national. Uh, and it gives them a better chance in some of those Labor working class electorates that rely on the mining sector that they hope to pick up, particularly in the Hunter region, for example. It, it shores them up in that seat of Latrobe down in Victoria for the Liberals that they otherwise might have had some trouble with where Jason Wood uh, holds that seat and was thought to, to be likely to lose at the last election. But then, of course, the swing wasn't on. And, and Western Australia, the Liberals have enormous problems, you would think, because of the state election result for Mark McGowan, as well as then things like Christian Porter's issues, even just in his individual seat of Pierce, whether he even does run. But Again, that's a mining centre 
and I don't think it hurts the Morrison government to not go down the path that they would call the woke path of, uh, of a net zero emissions target. So on that calculation, it remains good electoral politics uh, to drag the chain on these issues, on, on that assessment, no matter how much it might frustrate uh, the yeah. woke brigade, as they like to call them. What about on the issue of uh, asylum seekers and border security? Because that has flared again, of course, with uh, the Murahapan family uh, now reunited and in the community in Perth. Um, you know, it's funny how, how finely sliced the response ultimately was from the government. Yes, uh, they had to bring uh, little Tanaka back to uh, a hospital. She was sick uh, with her mum. Then yes, it's ugly if you don't if you separate the family. So yes, you can reunite the family. Can they go back to Billawila? No, they've got to stay in Perth. Are they getting any kind of a visa to let them stay? No. So these are political decisions as much as legal decisions, or certainly decisions about the health of the family. And they've all got a view to the next election. Yeah, and, and I think, again, um, differentiating between how they, well, talking about the politics of how they manage this, I think that when it came to the Billawheeler family, the government needed to get them united and get them out of detention on Christmas Island. They've ticked those boxes, even if you think that they've been too slow, which I'm sure you agree with me that they certainly have been. However, that, I believe, solves the political problem. I think it was a political problem for them across the electorate and across Australia if they continued to have the family separated or indeed if they tried to send uh, the little girl and her mother back to Christmas Island uh, to the other child and father rather than free them into community detention, I think that would have been a political issue at the election and it would have been an ongoing media focus. But doing what they've done, even though I don't agree with it, I think they should be allowed to go back to Bill Wheeler. I think he should be allowed to work. The community wants him back and I think that they should do more uh, on the front of giving them some sort of temporary protection, if not a pathway, a, a proper pathway towards permanent protection in this country, given that both girls were born here, whatever the rules um, are. Exceptionalism often prevails in other ways, which we've talked about. So I think that is wrong, but I don't think it's a political problem because what I think happens now is that whilst sections of the commentariat and sections of refugee advocate groups will complain and continue to rightly complain that they're not back in Biloela and that they don't have a clear pathway towards residency or permanency here in Australia. I think getting them out of Christmas Island and getting them back together in Perth stops it being a front order issue in the media. And whilst it still might get a bit of coverage here and there, it goes back to being at the margins. Whereas the way it was, it became a headline story where millions of people are seeing it because it's dominating news agendas on the nightly news, it's in the front pages of the paper. That fades now, even though a lot of people might disagree and think, oh, God, for heaven's sakes, just let them go back to Biloela where they want to be and the community wants them. I think it, it the fact that they're not going back but they're at least out of detention, it moves away from being that front-order issue. Do you agree with that? Yeah, well, I do think also it's helped by the fact that Labor doesn't want it to be a front-page issue. Uh, it's awkward for them. They, they had a moment where they plainly were pushing uh, a line about um, – uh, you know, a popular line, I think, to get the family reunited and, mm. and raising expectations that uh, special exemptions might be made for them. But, uh, you know, the impression you get is that they're happy having made that point to then slip back to where they've been. And that is as close as they possibly can be to the government on border protection because it's damaged them so much in the past. 
Well, it's funny you mentioned that because I, this didn't make it to air because I went off in another direction. But during that second last sitting week, um, I hit up um, Mark Butler as he was coming out of one of the other studios in that corridor that you know well, Hugh, uh, at the press gallery in Parliament House. And I was asking him questions about, you know, isn't it just a fact that because Labor wants this family to get residency now and, and to have a, a permanent protection here in Australia – that there is now a difference in border policies when it comes to boat arrivals between the government and the opposition. And he didn't want to say that, even though there quite plainly factually is a difference because one side of politics is prepared to do something that the other side of politics isn't. They don't want that to leap the fence into a broader discussion where the argument can be Labor has a different border protection policy now than does the coalition, because that goes to your point. They don't want the discussion to be front and centre when it becomes that type of discussion potentially rather than just simply the humanitarianism of getting this family out of you know, barbed wire detention. Yeah, it's interesting too. I wonder how much the whole border thing has, has been changed because we've now internalised our borders much more as big, dark black lines as a consequence of COVID uh, since the last election so that we, we are all living in a world where we're isolated from the rest of the world physically. Uh, it's very difficult to get out. It's very difficult to come in, even if you're, as we've seen, an Australian citizen, you know, threats of jail coming out of India and all that kind of business. And I wonder... You know, what is the psychological effect of that over time on all of us, um, that that conception of free international travel, which we're taking completely for granted, has been removed, how much that plays into issues of asylum seeker. I suspect it's going to make us even more inclined uh, to put up barriers, that that will be the national, regardless of individual feelings, that will be the essentially the national Australian position will be ever more peering out over high walls at the rest of the world. Yeah, look, I think that's going to be with us for a while. As you say, I think it's going to be practically with us for a while because of COVID, but I think it's also going to culturally be there too in the longer term because of the change that COVID brought about. I, I completely agree with you. I mean, we're seeing it even at a state-by-state state level to some extent, even if there's a little bit of blowback starting on, on that front. Um, but, you know, whether we like it, the, the new normal is not what was once normal. Uh, and uh, that closed offness, I mean, the, the real tension point, I think, is probably less boat people because I think, you know, whether I agree with it or not, there was a, a pretty broad community consensus on that, even if it wasn't one that I supported. Um, I think that the other one that's really going to be interesting going forward, Hugh, is immigration um, because, you know, the, 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 the way that Howard's government and others managed to have seemingly contradictory messages, highing immigration at the same time as very tough border policies. Uh, I'm not sure that, the, that any political party is going to find it as easy to embrace the kind of immigration levels that we've had in the past. And they were super important to the kind of economic um, performance that we've managed to have as a country for such a long time. All of that leads on to jobs, which we'll discuss in just a moment. Let's take a quick break. Welcome back. This is The Professor and the Hack, episode 98. And uh, let's go to the job figures, PVO, because they are absolutely extraordinary. And they prove one thing, and we, we, this is the official unemployment rate just down at 5.1%. Um, and it proves a couple of things. One of them is that the JobKeeper cliff that people spoke of and feared that when JobKeeper was uh, wound back, 
that that would lead to a sharp spike in unemployment, official unemployment figures, uh, didn't happen. And uh, and that's a huge plus, huge tick, isn't it, for Josh Frydenberg and Treasury, who, who tried to navigate this extraordinary uh, set of dilemmas? Yeah, well, you know what I find real? I mean, I think it is. But it, what I find interesting about it, as someone who is perhaps more fiscally conservative than most people these days, uh, including in the ranks of the conservative side of politics, you know, I, I, I question whether they kept some of these high spending initiatives for too long. Uh, and you, you get shouted down if you said that, because the Labor argument was that they needed to be broader and last longer because there was this cliff coming. It turns out that the cliff wasn't there and the unemployment rate continues to cascade down. It's actually lower now than it was pre-pandemic at 5.1%, down from 5.5% just in that one month alone. Uh, there has been no fiscal cliff with the end of JobKeeper. There might be a slight uptick after the lockdown that we've just seen recently in, in Melbourne and Victoria, we'll see. But, uh, you know, arguably, and almost beyond arguably, actually, uh, this all could have ended earlier and unemployment would have continued to fall and we would have saved billions of dollars. But that wasn't the argument. But it's also a problem any... for Labor. That's a problem for Labor, though, isn't it? Because if people well, of course. Um, want to, you know, go through this, it, 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 you're always intrigued as to how much of this still has currency when the next election comes around. But I'm sure the coalition will try to uh, direct people's attention to it, is they'll say, hell, if it was left up to Labor, half the country would still be on JobKeeper. The budget and our debt position would be disastrous by this stage, and none of it would have been necessary. They were too they would have been too timid uh, to trust, if you like, the engines of the economy to come back into line. And that last point, I think, is the key to the way that they can put this politically at the next election. They've got the evidence now as a result of dropping unemployment in the wake of the end of JobKeeper to say that we did not, on the evidence, need JobKeeper to be extended in the way that Labor said that they wanted to. They've got the proof. There is actual evidence there. So they can then leap from that evidence to say it is therefore a fact that we would have had more debt unnecessarily under Labor, not just more debt under Labor, which we try to win the argument by saying would have been unnecessary, but more debt under Labor that we can prove would have been unnecessary because look at what's happened to unemployment uh, since JobKeeper came off. So that is actually a very powerful argument, as you say, whether people look into the detail enough before voting, who knows, but it's actually unusual because often these arguments, whether it's Labor spruiking its own value around education and health or it's the coalition spruiking its own value around the economy, often it's rhetoric as much, if not more so than reality uh, when they try to lampoon one another. But this actually is reality. They actually have some serious logic and reason that they can rely on to whack labor on that one and another thing too and i do i've mentioned this before but i had this sense almost in my stomach a sense of dread on march the 23rd i think it was of um nine of 2019 is that right? No, 2020. It was last year. God knows how these past years have gone confused. But that was the day when basically the pubs and everything, the restaurants shut down and the huge mm. queues lined up. And, and, and that scene of them down in East Sydney at the Centrelink office going up through block after block after block of people all sitting there feeling bewildered, kind of shocked, ashamed, the sense that, um, that, that, millions of jobs could disappear in an instant 
and 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 what was the future going to hold? What could they expect of government? What you know? How could we find our way out of it? And to think that in this cycle, this electoral cycle, they will go into an election potentially with an unemployment rate with a four in front of it. You know, I'm as any journalist loath to praise any politician of any stripe, <laughs> but somehow or other, something worked for us in the most important thing, and that is maintaining health and keeping people employed. That that surely is a hell of a combination for Scott Morrison, much as people may point to his limitations that he can show to people as he goes to the next election. Oh, it's a, look, it's a powerful argument, you know, and, and it's not about whether you think that there aren't holes in the argument uh, or that there aren't alternative ways of, of spinning it. It's just that it's a powerful argument that is a powerful political argument as well. Uh, and it's hard to see how Labor overcomes that unless they can really tangibly lock onto other mistakes like the vaccine rollout or hotel quarantine. Uh, the, the economic argument against re-electing the Morrison government is one that is an argument for the following election, not the one that we're just about to face, if indeed they do win it, because by then you'll have the We'll be able to see how economic growth has gone into the longer term post-pandemic. We'll be able to see if rising inflation has resulted in rising interest rates. We'll be able to see if the housing bubble, therefore, comes off and people are left somewhat devastated. We'll be able to see uh, if these unemployment changes are short-term and not even medium to long-term. And then there, there is a spike in unemployment that follows some of the consequences of the inflationary changes. But that none of that is happening at the next election. You know, the next election for Scott Morrison is is... is He's, as so, he's on as solid a ground as he can ever be on when it comes to the economy. His challenges are in some other public policy spaces. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the cautionary note, I suppose, is that the expectation is, is that the rise in growth as we bounce up out of the deep hole now flattens off a fair bit. So um, the mm. sense of forward momentum may not be ever as strong in the next few years as it is right now. Uh, it'll tail off into something that might look a little bit more stagnant. And we should mention that wages growth is is an issue, but again, probably not for the next election, probably for the one after that, because, you know, when you've got CPI and, and inflation, you know, essentially, therefore, running at 3.5%, but you don't have wages growth, and we even saw with the minimum wage going up during the week, it went up at 2.5%. So, in other words, in real terms, people on the minimum wage are becoming worse off. But the rest of Australia who are not on the minimum wage, they're doing better financially, but in real terms, they're probably doing even worse because they're unlikely to be getting a 2.5% pay rise at the moment based on wages growth, but they are facing 3.5% inflation uh, according to what's been projected. So in time, that bites. When you've got less money in your pocket to buy things that are becoming more expensive, in time that bites, particularly if you've got a mortgage and your interest rates go up as well. But none of that's an issue at the next election for Scott Morrison. Superannuation changes have come in. Do you think they, uh, you know, there are scare campaigns going on and promises that this will save people $18 billion? I love it when they say that. This will bring you $18 billion. You go, oh, I look forward to seeing that. <laughs> you know, yes. e even if so, my proportional uh, chance, my proportional segment of that will be trifling as a consequence of the uh, superannuation changes. But they seem, broadly speaking, to be good ones, the worst elements of it, which involved government intervention and what super funds invested in, uh, was kicked out in part because nationals said, well, that means some future government, you know, can go off and order that no investments get made in coal or, or some such. So 
you know, and that was a poor element of the original design. And it certainly breached what Bill Kelty, the sort of the, the father of the superannuation system said, is that it has only one purpose and that is to improve the retirement incomes of Australian workers, uh, you know, not to achieve other social aims, no matter how worthy. So what we're left with out of the super changes surely are broadly speaking, pretty good. Yeah, look, Labor got played on this politically. Um, they were running around telling everyone behind the scenes that Josh Frydenberg was not going to get his super reforms through because, you know, not only were they opposed by Labor and large sections of the crossbench, but he may not even get them through the lower house was the argument because the Craig Kellys of this world and some others in his own ranks uh, or broadly on their own ranks, Craig Kelly obviously having become a crossbencher, uh, were not going to support it. But what Labor sort of didn't seem to understand was that there was deliberate ambit in the legislation that was put forward. And what I mean by that is that they didn't expect the government to get everything that was in the original bills that were put forward. They put unwanted ambit in it that they were then happy to negotiate away to get left with what they wanted to get through. Uh, And one of the things that you just referred to there was some of that ambit. I mean, there was no value for a coalition government in changing the law such that a Labor government can then make all sorts of punitive changes if they get into power. That was ambit that got removed. Craig Kelly was happy. So were others. It then passes with what the government really wanted to achieve. Uh, and so Labor got played. They ran up, ran around talking up how embarrassing it would be for Josh Frydenberg not to get his super laws through. Well, he got them through. I was distracted from some of the politics of the past week because I've been attending the uh, Ben Roberts Smith defamation hearing against what a, what we call them shorthand the the nine newspapers. It's perhaps too much of a shorthand because one of them was the Canberra Times, which is no longer wasn't brought up by nine, but doesn't matter. Um, a couple of things out of that really struck me. One is that um, among the witnesses who are listed as likely to give evidence for nine is the Assistant Defence Minister. Andrew Hastie, a former SAS officer, an Afghan veteran, someone who was in the field with Ben Robert Smith. He is giving evidence. Just think about this. You have a Liberal Party, a government MP, an assistant minister of defence has been listed as a witness for a, a media group against the greatest living Australian war hero, Ben Robert Smith, VCMG. There are incredible optics, incredible personal clash is going to come in the coming weeks, because this thing has still got weeks to run, when Andrew Hastie, if he does take the witness box, um, goes in there and gives evidence against his hero. This is a, um, an extraordinary moment, really, in, in our political and our, in our military history. Absolutely. That's, you know, I guess it's just one of those reasons why um, defamation matters can become so incredibly messy, can't they? Uh, this is that playing out right before our very eyes in the full glare uh, of the media. It's not surprising, having come to this, that, that is where Andrew Hastie is lining up vis-a-vis Ben Robert Smith, because Andrew Hastie, uh, as you say, they did serve together and he has been a critic of what he has described as the warrior culture of the SAS. And of course, we've seen some of the broader findings that have been handed down in relation to um, potential war crimes. And I'm not talking specifically about Ben Robert Smith, you know, that's playing out. I'm not going into that. Um, But, you know, it involves that unit. Uh, And so we are therefore seeing allegations and responses 
uh, in that defamation trial uh, that appear to overlap pretty heavily with some of that. And Andrew Hastie is not a small fish <laughs> in a small pond. He uh, he's right in the thick of it uh, with a with a military track record of his own. So that will be interesting. And it's also even just interesting from a person personal perspective for him. He's a West Australian. Uh, and of course, it's West Australian media mogul Kerry Stokes that we understand is heavily in behind Ben Robert Smith. And of course, Ben Robert Smith, I think, currently on leave, but does work for his uh, media empire. So uh, a lot of complexity there. Absolutely. And in the background of all of this is as he sat in court and were reminded with these uh, uh, accounts of battle in uh, in Afghanistan generally, but a lot of it in Uruzgan province where some of these alleged war crimes took place. Um, 39,000 Australian troops served as part of the broader um, effort there around Afghanistan, 39,000. And um, so these crimes exist, but uh, crime allegations exist. But at the same time, we're being told that uh, the Taliban is effectively back in control of Uruzgan province, uh, that it stands poised uh, to take major population centres, whether it's Kandahar, Jalalabad, Herat maybe, or even Kabul itself, uh, once there's the final withdrawal. Uh, later this year, and um, and many people, many people busted in many ways are going to are going to say, what the hell was that all about? But um, yep, that's for another time. PBO, sorry, Hugh. It's not Hugh. I was just going to say, it's not like they had a lesson that they could learn from, though. It's not like any other great superpower uh, tried to lead uh, their nation into Afghanistan. You know, a matter of decades before that, and found themselves uh, in in a in a you know, in a, in a quagmire as a result. So no, he's no, no. Yes. It hurt the no, Russians. Hurt no, the Soviets. repeating itself on that front. No, it's sad. I feel for everyone who served there, but um, they'll take out of it what they will. Uh, all the best to talk to you as always PVO till next time. Chat soon. You have been listening to a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks.